Lesson 7 for November 8 to 14, Taming the Tongue. Sabbath afternoon, November 8. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good gift that you give to us. And as we open your word this week, we pray that we will be drawn closer to you, that we will more fully understand our responsibility to our fellow man and our communication with him or her. And as we do so, we pray that we may be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Matthew 12, verse 37. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's read that again. Matthew twelve thirty-seven. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Words hold tremendous power. A word fitly spoken, Proverbs 28, 11, praise, poetry, stories, can shape lives in profound ways. What we say may linger for days or even years. Children, for example, absorb words like sponges. That's why they soon speak fluently whatever language they grow up hearing. It's also why the messages they hear about themselves may foreshadow their future success or failure. For better or worse, the communication style of parents is replicated and amplified in their children. The written word is powerful too and even more lasting. Most powerful of all is God's word. Consider, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, Psalm 119, verse 105, and thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee, verse 11 of the same psalm. Jesus directed the attention of the disciples away from temporal blessings to something much more vital. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. John 6.63 Words can soothe and reassure or poison and contaminate. How often have you said something you wished you could take back? This week, as we will see, James has some important words about, well, words. Sunday, November 9, Accountability Question. Read James, chapter 3, verse 1. What important point is he making here about accountability? Well, let's read from verse 1 in James, chapter 3. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Teachers in the church and in Christian schools have an especially heavy responsibility because they shape minds and hearts in ways that will last for years. This effect includes the rippling impact they will have on many others beyond their immediate sphere of influence. The more we know, the more responsible we become for utilising and imparting that knowledge. At the entrance of the Tyndale House Library in Cambridge, England, is a plaque reminding every scholar who enters there, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. Man is not the measure of all things. God is, and all true education begins and ends with him. 
Unfortunately, as knowledge increases, dependence on God tends to diminish. It is too often practiced and taught, for example, that science functions independently from God. Some teachers of theology, in striving for credibility, also may utilize methods that leave little or no room for faith. As a result, faith can gradually get squeezed out of the minds and hearts of both teachers and students. But as long as educating for eternity, not just for this world, is uppermost for teachers and students alike, learning will be precious, a precious, even inspirational endeavour. Paul understood this responsibility, for he trained and ordained leaders in the churches he raised up. We read about that in Acts chapter 14, 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And Titus 1, 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city, as I commanded you. He even gave instructions to Timothy to guard God's flock from inexperienced and unwise shepherds in 1 Timothy 1, 3-7. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes, rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor the things which they affirm. And in 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 to 6, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetousness, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And First Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 to 5. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such... Withdraw yourself. And Second Timothy 2, verses 14 and 15. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Here he's warning that some are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, as he said in 2 Timothy 3, 7. 
parents carry a weighty responsibility in teaching their children, who in turn influence others. All of us, in fact, by the example we set, can have a profound influence on those around us. How important, then, that we seek God's wisdom which He has promised us in James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him, that we might model his ways and exert a godly influence. For we all, for good or for bad, do exert influence over others. So to finish today, think about those who have influenced you in a positive way. What did they do? How did they impact you? And most important, how can you do the same for others? Monday, November 10, Word Power James 3.2 For we all stumble in many ways. What a refreshing admission, especially considering James's emphasis on behaviour. Still, our acknowledgement of the real need not dim our belief in God's ideal for us as his representatives on earth. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. That's verse 2 of James chapter 3. The form of the condition in Greek implies that not stumbling in word is a real possibility. The importance of words can scarcely be overestimated. Thoughts lead to words, which in turn lead to actions. Words also reinforce what we think. Thus, they influence not only what we do, but also what others do. We are interconnected through language. This week's passage contains several illustrations of the power of the tongue. The first three emphasize how something small can have huge consequences. A bitten bridle can turn a horse, a rudder can steer a ship, and a spark can engulf a forest in flames. Question. What positive kinds of word power do we find in Scripture? Well, first of all, we'll look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And Deuteronomy twenty-three, twenty-three: That which is gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And Psalm 40, verse 3. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear, and will trust in the Lord. And Proverbs 10, verses 20 to 21. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. And Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. And Malachi chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. 
The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of the priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And Luke 4, verse 22. So all bore witness to him, and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And Romans 10, verses 6 to 8. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach. Young children are impressionable, but like trees that grow stiffer and more fixed, children resist change more as they age. In one sense, we are all teachers, whether in the home or in the church. Because our words have so much power, it's important to bathe our thoughts in God's word early in the day. After all, what feeds our thoughts and words? God's spirit or another source? We must not underestimate the enormous changes that are possible through God's word. Well, we'll look at Psalm 33 and verse 6, and we'll compare that with Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. First of all, Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Words are so potentially powerful that with just a few sentences, you can devastate a person, perhaps for the rest of his or her life. On the other hand, positive words can uplift someone, perhaps for just as long. So to finish the day, if you had dynamite in your hands, how careful would you be with it? What should your answer tell you about how you should deal with something even more powerful than dynamite? Tuesday, November 11, Little Things Are the Big Things. Question. Read James chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. What do the two illustrations have in common, and how do they relate to the tongue? Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? Both the bit in a horse's mouth and a rudder of a ship are very small compared to what they control. Yet, with a slight movement of the hand, the horse's or the ship's direction can be completely changed. By the same token... As it said in verse 5, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. In other words, a word or even a look or a gesture might seem small, 
but each can change a friend into an enemy or transform a bad situation into something good. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Proverbs 15 verse 1 Imagine a horse galloping at full speed and a ship slicing through the water at full throttle, but both headed in the wrong direction. The faster something goes, the farther away it gets from its destination. The best course, then, is to stop and turn around as soon as possible. The same is true of our words. If a conversation is going from bad to worse, the sooner we stop, the better. Question. Read Luke 9, verses 51 to 56. What was Jesus' response to the suggestion of the disciples? What was the result, and what lessons might this story have for us? Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them, and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Although the disciples had a biblical precedent for their suggestion in Second Kings 1 verses 10 and 12, let's have a look at that. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So Elijah answered and said to him, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Jesus rejected the suggestion. His rebuke dramatically altered the situation. The story ends simply by indicating that they went to another village. Jesus turned his rejection by a Samaritan village into a learning experience for his followers. In the heat of the moment, when feelings rise up and clamour for us to defend ourselves, we can remember the example of Jesus and, figuratively speaking, move on to another village. As Ellen White wrote in That I May Know Him, page 209, As drops of water make the river, so little things make up life. Life is a river, peaceful, calm and enjoyable, or it is a troubled river, always casting up mire and dirt. And so to finish today, what are some little things in your life that, as you dwell further on them, might not be so little after all? Wednesday, November 12, Damage Control We've all experienced it. Something we said gets magnified, perhaps even exaggerated, to the point that we don't even recognise it anymore. As James says, See how great a forest a little fire kindles. 
That's James 3 verse 5. Question. Read prayerfully and carefully James 3 verse 6. What is he saying about the power of the tongue, of our words, to defile everything about us? Why should this verse make us tremble before we speak? James 3 verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. While fire, when used symbolically, can signify cleansing, it's more frequently refers to destruction, including the destruction of ill-advised words. Let's look at Isaiah 4 verse 4 where the impression of cleansing is. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughter of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 9. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, This is my people, and each one will say, The Lord is my Lord. It's more frequently refers to destruction, as in Joshua 6.24, But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua 11, verses 9 and 11. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. And First Samuel chapter 30, verse 3, So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. And Matthew 7, verse 19, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But sometimes it includes the destructiveness of ill-advised words, as we've just read, Proverbs 16.27. An ungodly man digs up evil, and it is on his lips like a burning fire. And Proverbs 26.21. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Not only can a large fire start from a spark, It can also ravage and destroy with amazing speed. In the same way, words can destroy friendships, marriages and reputations. They can sink into a child's psyche and mar his or her self-concept and future development. Sin originated on earth with a seemingly innocent question in Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It began in heaven in a similar way. Lucifer, as Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 37, began to insinuate doubts concerning the laws that governed heavenly beings. So it's no exaggeration to say that the tongue is set on fire by hell, as we read in James 3 verse 6. While it is true that words once spoken are gone forever and that we cannot fully undo what we have said, 
we should do all we can to lessen the damage and correct what we can. Taking steps to make things right will also help us not to repeat the same mistake. For example, after a further revelation from God, Nathan the prophet returned to David immediately to correct something he had said. Let's read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, and to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more, as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever." According to these words, and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Peter wept bitterly over his denial of Christ, and later demonstrated more openly the genuineness of his repentance in John chapter 21, beginning at verse 15. So, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. 
Though no man can tame the tongue, as it says in James 3.8, we are admonished to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies in Psalm 34 verse 13. Only the Spirit of God can help us keep our words in check. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4 verses 29 to 32. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So to finish today, read James chapter 3, verses 6 to 8. Why should the thoughts of these verses make us be so careful with what we say? How can we learn to appreciate the power for good or evil contained in our mouths? Beginning at James 3, verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Thursday, November 13, Blessing and Cursing Question. Read James chapter 3, verses 9 to 12. What truth does James illustrate using the fountain, the fig tree, and the grapevine? With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water, and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. The idea of both blessing and cursing coming out of the mouth of a Christian is disturbing, to say the least. What about watching profanity-laced television programs or movies during the week, and attending church on Sabbath, to hear the word of God. What about someone who speaks the truth and wonderful words about Jesus, only to later be heard telling an off-colour joke? These images should be spiritually disturbing because they are contrary to what we know to be right. The same mouth that praises God can later tell a dirty joke. What's wrong with this contrast? James uses the image of a spring. Water quality depends on its source, and the root determines the fruit. Matthew 7, verses 16 to 18, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Similarly, 
If God's word is implanted in us, its working will be evident in our lives. Understanding this truth frees us from the burden to prove our faith. Pure religion is rooted in faith, which is self-authenticating, just as a pure water spring needs no proof other than the water that flows naturally from it. At the same time, though, one could ask, if we were to take a snapshot of certain devoted followers of God at low points in their experience, Moses murdering the Egyptian, David with Bathsheba, and so on, might we not legitimately question their profession? God's will, of course, is that we do not sin. First John 2, 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. However, since the fall of Adam and Eve, God has made provision for our forgiveness if we do sin, based on faith in the promised sacrifice. We read about that in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Nevertheless, the fact remains that sin brings sadness, while obedience brings blessing. Moses spent forty years tending sheep to unlearn the training that led him to kill and David suffered the death of the child Bathsheba bore, as well as a divided household that threatened his kingdom to the end of his life. Sure, we can be forgiven our sins after we do them. The problem, however, is that so often the consequences of those sins can remain, often with devastating results, not just for ourselves, but for others too. How much better to be on our knees asking for the power of victory than having to ask for forgiveness afterward and then plead for the damage to be brought under control. Friday, November 14. While in the company of those who indulge in foolish talk, it is our duty to change the subject of conversation if possible. By the help of the grace of God, we should quietly drop words or introduce a subject that will turn the conversation into a profitable channel. Ellen White writes in Christ Object Lessons, page 337 and 338. We continue. Far more than we do, we need to speak of the precious chapters in our experience. We should speak of the mercy and loving-kindness of God, of the matchless depths of the Saviour's love. Our words should be words of praise and thanksgiving. If the mind and heart are full of the love of God, this will be revealed in the conversation. It will not be a difficult matter to impart that which enters into our spiritual life. Great thoughts, noble aspirations, clear perceptions of truth, unselfish purposes, yearnings for piety and holiness will bear fruit in words that reveal the character of the heart treasure. When Christ is thus revealed in our speech, it will have power in winning souls to him. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, the problem with words is that for most of us, they come out so easily. So often, too, they come out almost before we even have a chance to think about what we are saying. 
because this is true, how can we learn to think carefully before we open our mouths? Two, think about the power of your words even upon your own self. Do this experiment. Consciously talk to others as much as you can about what God has done in your life, how he has blessed you, how he has gotten you through trials and so on. Do this even for only a day or so and then ask yourself, how has this impacted my faith? And three, what do you think your words reveal to others about what goes on in your heart? Might they be revealing more than you would like to think? If you recorded all your spoken words in a single day and then played them back to yourself, what would they reveal about you? Inside Story Our mission story this week is one of those two-part ones. It's titled The Disobedient Son, Part 1. Vitaliano had it made. As an officer in the Cuban military, he had a steady job that carried with it a certain amount of respect. He and his wife, Migdalia, had two small children and lived in a modest home. Things were going well, and he had no interest in God or religion. One day, Vitaliano returned from work early and greeted his wife. But his five-year-old son, Alexei, did not come running to greet him. "'Where is Alexei?' he asked. "'He's at Rosabelle's,' Migdalia answered. Rosabelle was a teenage girl who lived next door. She was a good girl who loved all the children. She sponsored a children's Bible club every week, and when she invited Alexei to attend, Migdalia agreed to let him go. But she warned Alexei not to tell his father, for he would be angry.' Alexei attended the Bible club whenever his father wasn't home. He loved the songs and Bible videos, which taught him so much about Jesus. "'What is Alexei doing at Rosabelle's?' Vitaliano asked. Migdalia hoped that he wouldn't ask. Now she had to tell him that Alexei was attending the children's Bible club. Vitaliano's face turned red with anger. "'You know I don't want anything to do with religion,' he exploded." Why did you let him go? Rosabel invited him, Migdalia said. Please let him stay. He is learning such good things, and this is his only chance to be with other children. A few minutes later, Alexei arrived home, but when he saw his father's face, he knew that he was in trouble. Alexei, his father said firmly, I do not want you to go to that Bible club meeting again. I do not want God in this house. Alexei didn't want to disobey his father, so for several weeks he did not attend the Bible club. But when he heard the children singing, he longed to go. One evening he asked his mother if he could return to the Bible club. She agreed, and he happily ran to join the other children. Alexei attended the Bible club regularly after that. Then one evening his father again came home early and found Alexei gone. "'Where is he?' he asked. When Migdalia did not answer promptly, he guessed. "'Is he at that house church next door?' he stormed. Migdalia nodded. "'Go get him right now,' he demanded. "'Please, Vitaliano,' she pleaded. "'Let him go. It is better for him to be there than running in the streets. At least let him stay until the meeting is over.' A few minutes later, Alexei bounded into the house. 
But when he saw his father's angry look, Alexei began to cry. "'Please don't spank me, Papa,' he pleaded. But Vitaliano was not going to let his son disobey him, and he spanked him. He ordered, "'You will not go back to that house church again.'" And this story is to be continued next week. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.